Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And Warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and uh, it's... uh, a nice day out there, dark as I come in, but uh, it's still worthwhile. Uh, you'll be pleased to hear that uh, Humphrey's going to have a yarn with us later in the program, uh, a week before Marx's 200th birthday on Saturday the 5th of May. So uh, May is a great month for great people because, of course, it's my birthday as well. <laughs> Not the same day, but the same month. Uh, and uh, so he's going to talk to us later in the program, half past eight, you'll hear from him. We're going to uh, find out what's going on at Centrelink as uh, the uh, corporates start... Uh, taking the service from the public hands. Uh, the LNP federal government seems to be hell-bent on uh, putting Australia into a canoe without a paddle uh, as it hands over call centres to Serco. And uh, we're going to start the program off with uh, a return to last week's conversation about other robots coming for your jobs. And in between all that, we went on Monday to a meeting that was put together by RAC, that's the Refugee Action Collective, uh, and uh, they've started a campaign called uh, Change the Rules for Refugees, and uh, they had someone speaking from uh, Victorian Trades Hall about how unions might be able to be related to this particular campaign. Uh, sobering words, practical advice. Uh, but first, uh, let's uh, re- return to a very important uh, launch that's coming up. For the November 2018 state elections, Victorian socialists and left-wingers are coming together to get a socialist elected to the upper house for the northern metropolitan region. Leading the ticket is long-time Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, followed by Moreland councillor Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance and Colleen Bolger from the Socialist Attorney. Victorian socialists will officially be launching our campaign on Saturday the 12th of May from 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Come along to find out more about our campaign and how you can get involved. It will be an opportunity to hear from the candidates and local community residents on the importance of getting a socialist into Parliament and presenting a political alternative from the major capitalist parties. A 3CR supporter. 
Now, uh, Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, now, you might have noticed that this is not a team effort at the moment, and Solidarity Breakfast would really like a team. So if anybody out there is interested in joining up and being part of it, doing the training, being part of the community radio scene and actually bringing views and news, then uh, perhaps you should actually uh, get to part of the 3CR team and specifically the Solidarity Breakfast team. Uh, Also, you should remember that uh, we've got our annual major fundraising coming up and that's going to be June the 4th to the 17th, and its slogan is Fight for Your Mic. Now, this is very important in these pretty crucial times of uh, political uh, uh, unrest, really. Australia uh, is, it might seem like uh, a nice place to live, and it, it is in comparison to, say, living in Syria, I should imagine, and a variety of other places. But uh, you have to fight for this, and it's exactly the same with fighting for your mic. Community radio doesn't just happen because some people quite like it and all the rest of it. Of course, because a lot of people dedicate a lot of time and uh, as uh, places like the ABC are being crushed by uh, ideological uh, right-wing views, it really is time to stand up to make sure that uh, things are happening in uh, a more... uh, nuanced way when you come to political discussion in the Australian landscape. And what's happening in the workplace is a perfect example. If you were listening to Stick Together, fine report by Matt Kunkel. We'll be listening to Matt in his uh, other persona as a member of the uh, Victorian Trades Hall uh, when he talks to the RAC meeting. But uh, before we do, we're going to go to Are the Robots Coming for Your Jobs? Now, I got a listener ringing in saying he wasn't very impressed with the argument that uh, robots aren't coming for your jobs because he came from the metal industry and uh, robots and mechanisation have had a big effect on certain factories, etc., etc. But anyway, it was a discussion from a broader view. Now, this is the last part of this discussion and the reason why I bring it to you is because it's about... Uh, the issue of how does one organise workers within the framework of uh, the fear and loathing that's brought on about uh, robots coming to take your jobs because uh, insecure work, all those kind of things, as well as uh, people being beaten over the head with the notion that uh, you're not going to have a job because we can easily replace you with uh, mechanisation. The speaker... Uh, went on to talk about, uh, they were specifically talking about Amazon because uh, Amazon is uh, a company that is making a huge amount of profit out of uh, using uh, as few workers as possible but and terrorising them effectively because of the regime that they operate in. And this is particularly important because... Uh, of course, uh, there's uh, the Melbourne uh, Amazon fact, uh, place has opened up in Dandenong and uh, in fact in uh, some programs later on in Stick Together we'll be following that story so you'll hear more about what the NUW, the National Union of Workers, are attempting to do with workers out there but what they have to deal with. But anyway, let's go to the last part of the other uh, robots coming for the job and I won't stand for the... Uh, uh, inverted racism that uh, because this speaker has an American accent that he's a uh, right-wing toad because in actual fact he walks the talk, this man. He is a worker and he was in, uh, part of a very important uh, industrial campaign last year 
which got a very positive result. So he does walk the talk. How do we think about Amazon? After all, it seems to totally contradict what I've just been saying. It's now one of the largest, it's now the third largest company in the world. It actually, they've actually just passed Microsoft uh, to be the largest internet tech company in the world uh, by market value. So on the stock market, they're worth more than anybody but two other companies. If you look at the fourth quarter in 2017, the top five most valuable companies in the stock market in the world are Apple, Alphabet, which is a Google umbrella company, the umbrella company that Google set up, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook. All five of the top companies in the world are tech companies on, as far as market valuation. Jeff Bezos is now the richest man in the world. He's worth $120 billion. This seems to completely fly in the face of what I'm saying. That surely the idea that Amazon is at the absolute top of the capitalist order uh, can't really be contested right now. Now, I want to say one thing about this, and just like everything in the tech industry, things aren't exactly as they seem. That was the largest companies by stock market value. This is the largest companies by revenue. And we've got here is the top 10. We've got Walmart up at the top, state utility, you know, other petroleum companies, automotive, uh, you know, some of the classic. The only company that's in the top 10 is Apple, which is computer electronics and so on manufacturing. Whereas Amazon is number 26 in that list. It's got uh, a revenue of what, about a quarter, a fifth of what Walmart does. Even though Walmart, even though Amazon is now worth far more than Walmart in the stock market, Walmart's annual revenue, in other words, the amount of stock, the amount of goods that they move on the capitalist marketplace, is worth about two-thirds of Amazon's total value on the stock market. Amazon's actual revenue is a tiny fraction of what Walmart does. Why am I saying this? I think that Amazon and the tech industry as a whole are the beneficiaries of a massive stock bubble, a speculative bubble. When you look at their actual weight in the economy, when you look at the actual value of the sort of business they do or the amount of stock that they move or the, the amount of goods and services that they produce and move, and they have a much smaller impact on the real economy. They have a much lower sort of footprint than what they actually are. Last year, the stock market in the US was at an enormous boom. It was about 22% increase. Just five companies, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, and Amazon, accounted for 47% of the total growth of the stock market last year. It's not just that they're the beneficiaries of a stock boom, they almost are the stock boom that's driving the rest of the stock market. I think that the reason why this is important, now, you know, obviously this means there's mountains of cash being thrown in the tech sector, things might change in the future, but the reason why I'm saying this now is that I think that that their value as companies on the stock market has a lot more to do with speculation and a lot more to do with what we talked about before, the declining rate of profit, the declining rate of productive investment means that they want to find anything that might turn a profit and that means effectively gambling on the stock markets, on other assets, things like Bitcoin. Uh, it means that these speculative bubbles emerge all over the place. And I think that a lot of the rise of these tech companies has to do with that sort of gambling and speculation and a lot less to do with their actual real weight in society and in the economy and their real sort of productive value. And I think that this is one of the reasons why so many journalists, um, you know, always sort of toot the horn of the tech industry and so many journalists uh, fall over themselves to declare the tech revolution. 
I think, to put it bluntly, they drink their own Kool-Aid, you know? They, they're true believers in the free markets, they're materially and ideologically committed to capitalism, and obviously this tech boom is the holy fruit from the loins of the capitalist system, and so they do everything they can to promote and legitimize it. And really, if you, if you believe in capitalism, then how could you do otherwise? Why is all this important? I want to talk about organizing workers for a second. So I think it's clear that over time we have seen a decline in the wages and the conditions of, of the working class. This is productivity on the one hand and uh, wages and conditions. The majority of the investment that has come from the private sector, that has come from the capitalist class and from these tech companies, it hasn't gone towards producing you know, high-tech robots and so on. It's overwhelmingly gone towards figuring out how to set up uh, you know, shell companies to produce things in China and pretty low-tech facilities or to figure out ways to further uh, increase the hours or the rate of work of, of workers, to figure out ways, in other words, to increase the brutal exploit, exploitation of the working class, to do things like drive down pay and working conditions. And just, you know, just a few examples of this. The iPhone, you know, the, the king of the new tech revolution, uh, it's produced and it's, it's assembled in like low wage sweatshops in China and pretty low tech facilities. Um, you know, very labor intensive for this you know, future like lack of labor that we're about to have. Uh, you know, you look at conditions in Tesla's car factories, they've been called Dickensian, you know, insecure rosters, extremely dangerous, no job security, low wages. You know, companies like Uber, they use, techni they use technology to employ more people, but they do it on extremely low wages and with zero labor rights. Again, far from moving towards a future without labor, capitalists are actually using the technology that they do to possess to turn the screws even more into labor uh, in order to drive up the rate of exploitation. And Amazon is no different. This is a chart showing basically what happens whenever an Amazon warehouse opens up in your local neighborhood. As you can see, as the number of Amazon warehouse workers go up, the wages overall in the industry go down. How do they do this? Well, they don't do it through AI and robotics predominantly. They use their economic heft to drive bidding wars between local, state, and city governments about cutting, ta cutting taxes and labor laws uh, in order to woo Amazon to coming to where they are. Uh, they employ particularly brutal forms of tailorism in order to de-skill labor in their, in their factories and make workers feel replaceable. Uh, they use legal, legal methods and threats of sacking to intimidate uh, people and to keep the unions out of the warehouses. Uh, they employ new forms of surveillance so that managers can intimidate and harass their workforce. They create a distributive network that uh, makes it difficult to have, makes it difficult for strikes to impact um, their sales and their distribution of goods. Uh, they use extensive networks of rats. Um, and they use the threat of technological change and automation uh, to scare people and, and intimidate again, intimidate them. Again, none of this is particularly new or revolutionary or sophisticated. These are tried and tested methods that bosses have used over generations since the actual industrial revolution uh, to, uh, to harass and intimidate workers. And I think that just as companies like Amazon uh, and Apple and the rest of them use old school methods of harassment and exploitation, I think that we, the left, the socialist movement, the union movement, need to use old school methods to counter them. 
Now, organizing workers isn't necessarily going to be easy. You know, you look at the, the American auto sector. This was a complete union desert for the first 25 years of its existence, uh, with none of the big three auto manufacturers being unionized. Uh, and then after 25 years of, of hard work, they were able to crack into them. And whenever they did crack into them in the 30s and 40s, these auto plants became the stronghold of the union movement. And even till this day, uh, a lot, in a lot of places, auto is still an important section of the union movement. But they became the stronghold, the bastions of the union movement in the United States. How do they do this? Well, a few points or a few lessons that we can draw from how the auto workers were organized. One, they, uh, it took determined, dogged work from labor activists in order to do it over years of, of you know, determined work. It took a strategy of rank and file activism on the part of those activists. So in other words, not just signing workers up, but setting up uh, democratic structures on the shop floor, rank and file committees and so on, finding activists that could develop as leaders. Uh, they needed an, an industrial perspective. Um, so organizing efforts needed to go just beyond one company or one uh, sort of factory and needed to go beyond that towards the industry as a whole. Um, and you know, building up solid, building up uh, traditions of solidarity between different workplaces was important. Uh, and lastly, the most important weapon isn't Facebook pages or you know media campaigns or online petitions. The most important weapon is still, like it always was, the strike. Organizing auto required huge, explosive strikes and sit-down occupations uh, in order to crack into them. And this, in reality, is the sort of action that will be required. Uh, in order to, to organize into the Amazon warehouses. Again, this won't be easy. There's, you know, there's roughly 200 Amazon warehouses in the world, or a bit more now, and as far as I know, none of them have signed union contracts. Uh, none of them have officially recognized a union in any of these countries, but neither had General Motors or Ford uh, or any of the other auto factories in America until the 1930s. So let's take quick stock of where we are. Uh, few key points. Number one, there is no evidence that the internet age or technology has led to an overall drop in labor. Again, there has been some industries, some occupations that have been automated, especially in union busting exercises and so on. However, the overall economy has not been fundamentally reshaped by automation or computerization. There has been some restructuring, but that has taken place since long before computers or the internet. There doesn't seem to be anything particularly earth-shattering about the pace or scale of change that we're going through right now. Uh, yes, there has been change, but if anything, it may have even slowed down, at least as far as absolute life-changing breakthroughs. Number two, there is little evidence that capitalism is gearing up for another industrial revolution. If anything, uh, well, the predictions and scale of uh, predictions about the scale of the autom of automation that is possible, I think, aren't even worth the paper that they're written on, like uh, the the, um, the study that we talked about before. But also, the rate of investment is at an all-time low, and any investment that does occur, hypothetically, is not going to lead to robot paradise. It's going to lead to uh, more crisis, more economic instability, more war, and so on. Number three, I think that the meteoric rise of the tech sector of Amazon and other companies has a lot more to do with speculation on the stock market than their actual 
uh, weight, their ability to impact the real economy. And if anything, I think that it has a lot more to do with the desperate search for any profitable, any profitable sort of investments on the part of the ruling class than it is to do with their own sort of future or their own potential. Now, the reason why I wanted to go through all these points is because I think we need to completely rethink the way that we talk about the tech sector and about automation. There's a reason why the threat of automation is so widely promoted in our society, and that is that it scares people. You know, just at my workplace, I work at a, a big warehouse. There's about 700 workers there. We are the only cold storage warehouse in, in, in Victoria for coals. We move an enormous amount of stock. It is an enormous expen enormously expensive facility to build and to operate. And yet, hardly a week or a day goes past where as soon as you talk about wages and conditions, people aren't like, but they'll just close us down, they'll set up another. Have you heard that there's this new Coles thing being set up? It's, you know, they're gonna shut us down, we be, we'll be gone in five years and so on. No, we won't, it's not that easy. Like, they're trying to build a new automated warehouse in Dandenong and it's been like five years of delays. It's cost nearly, or well over half a billion dollars to build. It's not that easy. They can't just get rid of us like that. But people are afraid that they are and I think the fact that Guardian articles like the one that I showed you at the beginning are now uh, widespread uh, is a lot of the reason why. Sorry, I meant to switch to that earlier. It probably would have been more inspiring. Uh, so I think we need to see a lot of this talk for what it is, which is hot air, which is rumors and speculation on the part of bosses and their paid sort of thinkers uh, to scare the shit out of society and to make us feel like we have no power uh, and to make us feel insecure and like we uh, are facing a future that is even worse than a present and, and so on. And I think the reality is that they're denying, or they're trying to die, or they're trying to delegitimize the central fact and the most important fact about capitalism. That is, they need us. Without workers, nothing works. This is as true now as it ever was in the past. You know, there's no robot right now that is stopping unions from organizing. There's no AI program that can't be shut off by the collective action of workers. If you can't turn the unplug the computer, then you can shut the power off to the whole freaking city, and that'll get rid of the AI computers. The reason that both union membership and living standards have been plummeting has nothing to do with technology or to automation. It has everything to do uh, with the fact that we've lost uh, the key section, the most important section of the union movement. Uh, you know, this is the class-conscious, radical leaders uh, that once formed the backbone of every union. There are hundreds of thousands of socialists and communists and other militants, uh, most importantly in the rank and file, but also in the, in the leadership of unions all over the world. The fact that this layer of people has been lost uh, has led to the steady drop and decline of the unions and living standards and everything else. Now, when we're talking about organizing, we're not just talking about Amazon workers here. Workers across the entire tech industry can be organized. You know, from factory workers in China that pump out iPhones and Mac computers, uh, to the IT workers that build software in Silicon Valley, to the lowliest Uber drivers in Melbourne. Uh, it is possible to organize all of these workers, and that is uh, what we need to do uh, in order to actually have a, a better future going forward. This is Natalie from Blue King Brown, and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. 
During the 3CR Radiothon for 2018, Spoken Word presents an evening of live poetry featuring the outstanding talents of Jennifer Compton, Andy Jackson, Tariro Mavondo and Kylie Supsky, plus an open mic recorded for broadcast on 3CR, Tuesday 15th of May from 7pm at Grub Food Van, 87 Moore Street, Fitzroy, and all proceeds go to 3CR Community Radio. Help keep independent, progressive voices on the air. The seriously funny Rod Quantock will be at Steps Gallery in Carlton to open a fundraising art show at 3pm on Saturday, May 19th. Works by Arthur Boyd, Lunig, First Dog on the Moon and many, many more will be on sale. There'll be political cartoons from the present and posters from the past, as well as artworks of beauty, joy and wit. All proceeds will support ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, and winner of last year's Nobel Peace Prize and ICANN's parent organisation, MAPWA. Health professionals promoting peace. All welcome. ICANN and MAPWA are 3CR supporters. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we're going to move right along to uh, what happened on Monday, which was uh, a RAC meeting. That's uh, Refugee Action Collective. They've started a campaign called Change the Rules for Refugees. Now, that, of course, uh, throws us back to the last uh, uh, Labor National uh, um, National. Labor Conference, where there was a block of unions that actually uh, stopped uh, um, there being a, a vote to change uh, certain aspects of the Labor Party's policy, which is an interesting thing in itself. Now, this particular campaign uh, is directly focused on uh, working uh, towards uh, a, a unions uh, working towards changing the rules for refugees. A bit opportunistic, you might say. But uh, anyway, they had a meeting and uh, this is what uh, a representative from the Victorian Trades and Labor Council had to say about uh, this change the rules for refugees concept. Uh, my job there is project organiser, which means... Lots of things, but it means I do all the things that don't fit into anyone else's job description. Um, partly, sometimes that come, is coming to, to speak to, to big groups, and I'm really excited to be in front of you all tonight. Um, I was just wondering, throw your hand up in the air if you're a union member. That's good. It's better than the general population. That's excellent. Um, the... If, if unions are going to be part of a, a fight back for refugees and people seeking asylum, people who support people seeking asylum need to be members of unions. Unions are democratic organisations that feel pressure from their membership. So that's the most important thing. It's a bit of homework for anyone here. Um, if you're not working, you can join a retired unionist network. Um, if you're a student, you can join a student union. One thing is that we need to be organised collectively to make any change in this world. And, and the biggest organised groups in this country are unions, so get amongst it. Um, I don't have the same personal experience in this area as the other two speakers, but I, I do want to tell a, a quick little story. Anyone who's been organising in trade unions for any length of time has a great story about a great workplace or, or, or a, great, um, uh, a great group of workers. And one of the best group of workers... And, and something else that organisers do work out eventually, uh, eventually or, or quickly is that 
refugees and migrants make excellent union members and they make excellent activists um, and it's, in, it's incumbent on, on the union movement to speak to all workers uh, no matter where they come from. Um, I like to talk, tell the story about the Pampas factory. Does anyone know the Pampas factory in Footscray? So I used to be the organiser for the pastry, um, the pastry makers at, at Pampas and that worksite had people from maybe 15 or 16 different nationalities and many of them had come in waves, fleeing war or, or, um, or political strife. We had those that had um, fleed post-World War II Europe. We had those that had fleed um, coups and political strife from Latin America. Um, and we also had people fleeing the, the strife in um, the Middle East and in Africa. And it didn't matter where people were from in this factory. They all got along. They all understood that they were workers and they all had something bigger than themselves, which was the union. The only fights amongst the different groups at the, at the factory was who got to be the union delegate. And that was the only ever internal fight I saw amongst those workers was who was the one that got to stick it up, um, up the boss. Um, so it, it's another great, it's a thing that more trade, I wish more trade union organisers um, came to that belief that every worker is, every worker counts as the NUW would say, every worker matters and we need to get everybody in unions. Um, so I, got a little, I think I got the brief a little bit different, um, but the, uh, talking about what unions can do as, as part of the, uh, changing the, the landscape or changing the rules for, for refugees. And as I said before, unions are the largest collective organisation of anybody in Australia, and, they, and in that comes a responsibility to fight discrimination and fight inequality wherever, wherever that happens. Um, and as union members and those that throw up your hands, I hope that you're all active in your workplace, and one of the most... One of the best things you can do in your workplace is just to talk to your workmates about these issues. And I know people like Lucy um, and others in, in groups like Teachers for Refugees do a lot of this really good work, but that's at the very, very pointy end of that. Um, and as I said, because these unions are democratic and they have these organisations, they are susceptible to pressure from below. So when the rank and file of unions organises internally and puts pressure on the, on the structures of the unions to do something about a particular issue, you find that they do it. And this is, you can see evidence in this where some unions have um, created LGBTIQ plus caucuses, and those unions were really some of the strongest unions in the Yes campaign during the plebiscite, because they had that internal structure inside their union pushing that campaign forward amongst the, bro the broader union. Same thing with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, caucuses inside unions. You find unions, especially the NTU, which I think is um, streets ahead of most unions on this, is doing really well because they have a really active internal group of union members from that union pushing that union forward, pushing the union forward and therefore pushing the movement, the union movement as a collective forward as well. Um, so that's critical and I'll talk a little bit about that before, uh, a, bit, a bit later, but I think... We talk about changing the rules um, in the industrial relations setting, but in today, tonight's meeting is about changing the rules for refugees. And I think this might not be a super popular thing to say in a room like this, but I think the, the, the Change the Rules campaign has a pretty clear electoral focus. Part, part of the phase that the campaign is in at the moment is to get rid of a government that hates workers so that we can get a, a government that ostensibly will do better by workers. Um, and whether or not that actually happens or not, there are limits to these types of electoral campaigns. We saw that after work choices where we ended up with the Fair Work Act, we've, um, which you know we've, was much better than work choices, but the, these are the rules that are broken. 
Um, the, 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 the situation, though, is that if, if we're talking about change to the rules for refugees through a, a parliamentary approach or a government approach, I think there's some real questions that the refugee movement needs to ask itself about whether that's actually its main goal. Because I, I struggle to understand what the strategy is for changing the rules through a parliamentary system or changing the rules through a parliamentary process. We have those that might be working internally inside the ALP. We have those that vote for the Greens and hope that the Greens will drag the ALP to the left. We have those that are organised in other, um, other political parties, and I can see some um, Vic Socialist shirts around the place um, tonight as well. I mean, these are all different theories of change, and these are all different ways that things can happen through a parliamentary process. But I think there's a real question that this refugee movement needs to ask is, what is the strategy for that? Is that the strategy that you want to do? And I guess I don't have more... I don't have enough time to unpack all of that, I guess. But that's a question for, for you guys, or you folks, sorry. Um, what I will say is I am a member of the Labor Party. Ooh, I get it. <laughs> I, I get it. I mean, they send me a card every year that says proud Labor member, and I call them up every year and ask them if they've got one that says maybe not so proud this year. But um, <laughs> what, I, what I can say is that getting... Getting things done in the Labor Party takes forever. It's not something that... If you need something done in the here and now, it's not something... It's not a great strategy. Um, I mean, I, I remember back when I was first joined the party in Queensland more than a decade ago, we were getting whipped about marriage equality. There was never, ever, 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 ever going to be a thing. And it took people inside the ALP and it took people campaigning outside the ALP and in other parties to drag the party forward. And it was all those different parts that did that. But that's such a long time ago for something that a major majority of the population supported. And now we find ourselves in this heated political battle about refugees. And every single election since that I can remember in my adult life has had a racial element to it. Because, unfortunately, this kind of racist dog whistling wins votes. It shouldn't, but it does. And we need to go out there and change people's minds. And we need to change people's minds where it matters, but we also need a more broad approach to actually bring people on and stand up and actually make demands that these changes to, um, to policy need to be made. Um, I can tell you about the internals of the AOP, how it works, it probably bore you to death. Catch me for a coffee afterwards. But if people want to know how to go about it, I'm, I can see there are people in the room um, that, that I've seen at ALP conferences for a very long time. And I know that they're pushing really hard and doing their best, but it's one of those things that the party system in this country is broken. Party systems only work when people that support them are members, and we don't have that in this country. We have parties that are hollowed out and are completely occupied by apparatchiks and movers and shakers. We need mass party. We need a party of the people. That way it will actually represent the people. I've only really got halfway through and I'm still at nine minutes, but here we go. So um, how can union mobilisations change the, change the rules for refugees? Well, the question I've got is when I look around the mass mobilisations of unions, I see mainly high-vis vests from the building and construction industries. And I think Lucy picked up on this in the delegates meeting last Tuesday, is that if at the moment we can only get largely construction workers to take stop work action, illegal stop work action as it is, to, to hit the streets for workers, like predominantly absolutely industrial relations issues, we're a long way away from getting those kinds of numbers in the streets for refugees. That's, that's 
not fun news to hear, but it's it's where we're where we're at at the moment. Um, and the question is, will workers flout those laws with the current laws that they've got at the moment that are so punitive? And the question, and the answer to that is probably no at the moment. Um, I really want to talk about action at the coalface and, and some of the great works that, that people are doing. And I want to talk about, you know, yes, pilot, those pilots, those healthcare workers, those people that have stood up and done something are heroes. And they're heroes because they've put their own livelihoods on the line for that. And the one thing is if we want to see a spread of that, we need to see a spread of organised support for those types of actions from rank and file members of unions from across all different sectors, not just... We can't just leave it to the pilots to do it. We can't just leave it to the health workers to do it. We all have to be doing something in our workplaces together. Um, and for that, I know I, I, Sally McManus and, and Luke would probably give me a smack across the wrist if I didn't say it. We do need to change the industrial relations rules to make the setting easier for workers to do this so that we're not putting workers in a situation where they might lose their house or they might they might get locked up in jail. So there are there are these industrial matters that there are interlinked between the social justice movements and the um, and the industrial issues. I've got heaps more but maybe there'll be questions I've said a lot but um, yeah thank you. <clears throat> Thanks everyone for your questions and I hadn't thought about unions going straight to PNG so it's a Certainly above my pay grade, but I'll kick it up the kick it up the chain and see what we can shake out. Um, lots of different questions. I hope I get to everyone's quickly, but I I'm really bad at this. Um, look, there was a, a really important comment from the floor about division and unions, and that is that bosses do to try try and divide us based on our our race, our gender, our religion. They do it because capitalists require workers to be apart, to be disunited. And that's the thing is that we do need to organise regardless of who people are. Workers are workers are workers. Where you come from, who you are, it doesn't matter. We're all workers. Um, the, the question about how do we get into workplaces, here's 80 workplaces. You're in 80 workplaces right now. You are the people that can make this change. You have brothers. You have workmates, sisters, mothers, fathers, cousins, friends from the football club. You speak to them, you bring them in, then you're in their workplace. It's hard. I mean, we're not going to be in every single one and we can't get in, perhaps in the ones that we want. Union officers can, union officials can, um, but to get them, to, unions, to take out a message about this, they're going to need to feel the rank and file swell. They're going to need to feel that the members are behind them to do it. Um, and that also comes to Ilya's question about how do we address issues inside the internal ALP stuff about unions, and that is union members, my, my view, union members need to organise around the issues that they care about as union members. And that means, I know, for example, up in ACT, there's a group called, you know, Unionists for Refugees. Yeah. We, don't, we don't really have something really solid like that down, down here. We don't have great big caucuses or, or great big action groups or rank and file committees about refugees inside unions. And the, and the simple fact is that if these organisations did exist, then those sort of decisions that are being made at that level are, have pressure from, from below and, and they're, hard, they're harder to make. The truth is, if we're looking at our current situation, are we going to change the rules at the July ALP conference? Well, if you believe that the rules are and could be changed by one conference, then I'm sorry, but no, we're not going to change the rules there. But even if you just take a small chunk and are we going to change things 
in a, in a big way inside the ALP? Probably not. And the reason we're probably not going to be able to do that in July is because we don't have this rank and file organised structures in the different unions to put pressure to make that happen. Um, I think that's... Yeah, yeah that, I think I've covered most of that. Yeah, thanks. Um, Liz. For some talk is cheap, election is what counts. When it comes to saving animals, to get down the murder amount. Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we're just about to have a chat with Anne Davies from uh, Fair Go for Pensioners. How are you, Anne? I'm well, thank you, Annie. Good morning. Good morning and uh, thanks for getting up and and having a chat with us. And today we're focusing on what's going on in Centrelink. Yes, that's right. Now, uh, there's the, the federal government's uh, handing on a platter the uh, call centres to private uh, in, uh, international corporation, Serco, who has uh, a f- fairly frightening um, a background, really. That's, that's exactly right. And, yes, um, and they are outsourcing a lot of jobs, but they have particularly focused on the call centres um, with Serco and... There's a number of issues with that. There's the huge issue of the uh, level of service delivery. I mean, the call centres, because there's been such a loss in face-to-face contact because of fewer staff, the call centres are now that key focus. And these are people calling uh, often at their most vulnerable time. And um, sadly, they are going are speaking with untrained in a large to a large extent people uh, when they can get through, um, and people who are being paid the minimum wage, so they're not give, being given adequate training for talking to vulnerable people. But and they're also they are not being paid adequately. It's interesting you should say that because I follow this. Uh, the what's been going on in the public service is quite a, a scandal for a number of years. Uh, the federal government's been uh, sacking thousands and thousands yes. of people in that area, and a lot of the call centre people were actually employed in rural areas of Australia. So exactly. it's a double-edged sword, right? That's exactly right. The impact in regional and rural areas is is very severe. And as you were saying, the loss of jobs, for example, just in the last budget, there were 1,280 jobs cut from Centrelink, and that's compounded cuts that have been happening progressively, you know, for a number of years now. And it's with the call centres, you know, as I was saying, it's complex and important work that's done in those centres. But, and so apart from that issue around 
how are people getting access to the proper services that they need? There's also the huge issues around privacy and confidentiality. I mean, Centrelink is an organisation that has so much information about any of us who need to contact them. And also, as we know, they have a direct link to the Australian Tax Office, the ATO. And the ATO has had 40% of their positions outsourced. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, so that means, you know, there's that crossover and you have the two organisations that have so much information about our lives. Now we, are, we know that we can't even have the confidence that that is only contained within our government. It has gone to private third parties. Yeah, and it's fascinating because uh, Serco, for example, I mean, it might be of interest to people to know that they run private prisons. They <laughs> And they run detention centres, yes, and private prisons, exactly. Now, exactly. it adds to this other thing, which is because it's a multinational corporation, uh, I presume their tax burden to Australia is limited and all that money goes out of the country again. That's exactly right. It goes out of the country. And the government pays Circo um, at the moment $50 per hour for the people they employ where they are employing those people at the minimum wage of 20. Oh, so they're raking it in. <laughs> so they're getting $50 per hour per employee as part of their contract with the government and they employ a minimum wage of $20.21. Now, this is a... a interesting... so, and, of course, the impact is... That's the one level of it, but it's the huge impact on vulnerable people because, as we know, there's always been long wait times. They are increasing. Also, Serco have, will have the responsibility for processing the robo-debt. Now, I think we'd all remember the terrible stories and angst and the impact on people's health that came out of those robo-debt uh, letters. Um, they are now going to be done via Circo. So, so what you're really saying is that uh, the whole uh, uh, cobweb of... Uh, a fragile yes. cobweb of uh, um, accountability is really just being thrown out of the window. It's all been broken apart. That's exactly right, and it's being done bit by bit. It's not even privatisation, you know, whereas previously um, a company would pay the government to take over, a you know, privatise when something was being privatised. Now we are paying companies to privatise. So and it's and it's being done by that stealth by bit by bit. Yeah. And the other and another issue, just as an example, with very vulnerable people. Now perhaps if they could get through on a call line, could make an appointment, if they had particularly complex needs, the next step would often be an appointment with a social worker within Centrelink. People with proper training as social workers. There are now six hundred social workers left in Centrelink. That is all. Ah, so it's, so it, no one can really, and, and particularly, as you said before, Annie, the impact on the regional and rural areas. So what we've got is a federal government that's abrogating its responsibility to its citizens. Yes, exactly, to all its citizens and its most vulnerable. And most of us at some stage of our lives will need to have contact with Centrelink. We'll need to give them all that information they require to assess what we are or are not eligible for. 
and and uh, we are all going to be looking at a very poor level of service if we're able to get through, but we're also looking at those huge privacy and confidentiality issues. Well, John Howard's government did this. They created a whole system which was bringing more and more of the population within the Centrelink uh, purview in uh, lieu of a an Australian identity card, I would probably argue. Yes, but yeah, that's, that's a very good point because really now we don't need to have an Australian identity card, do we, for them to have however much information they want about us. <clears throat> but in that said, and not only the really scary thing is that there's that um, private third party that is having access to this. And as I said, we, as we all know about the interface between the tax office and Centrelink, and so... And yet 40% of the tax office positions have also been privatised. I find it really irritating that uh, they can have an election where this government gets in uh, by a hair's breadth and then it decides that it's going to sell all of our assets and our social structures and cultural uh, heritage uh, without anybody being able to actually do anything about it. That's exactly right, Annie, and I think... Um, and we've seen, I think the current experience and studies that are coming out where we've had privatisation of our utilities, for example, <laughs> the evidence clearly shows that it costs us money. It, didn't, it doesn't make money. It, of course, it means an increase in prices for those necessities of life. And at the same time, and it costs the government. So it doesn't save us money. It costs us money. It's a falsehood. It's, it's one of those myths that's peddled that the private sector can always do it better. It can't. Well, it's it's a, it's um, really irritating because people argued quite clearly that uh, what yes. has happened will happen. In fact, being on the left side of politics, exactly. You know, it, it's a bit like being Cassandra. You're right almost all the time. <laughs> well, that's true, and I guess you know we could draw the analogy with the current um, commission into the banks, you know, and <laughs> the financial sector, and and people are saying, you know, there's a lot of shock, horror from politicians. Well, I mean, it's sad. I'm sad to say that I'm not shocked or surprised. Thanks for talking to us today, Anne. Uh, We've come to the end. Um, A fair go for the pensioners. Where where can people get part of your group? Oh, well, we're a group that's open to... um, Anyone within the community, in the sector, we have representation from retired unions, but a wide range of community agencies and organisations, and we also have a strong social justice focus, and we are also uh, have individual members. I'm an individual member of Fair Go for Pensioners. So they can, get on, they can become members by going online, Fair Go for Pensioners. Yes, yes, they can get information there and um, with through our website or... Um, Yes, so and we use, we meet monthly um, at the Australian Metal Workers Union building in Carlton. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Annie.
a weak solidarity bricky team wrestler when when we look at the talents like former he seed and sheepshed party supremo barnacle and minister for concentration camps razor wire and sink the boats constable peter duffer and this week the minister for something to do with smashing union super funds kelly oda wire workers so evil the mind boggles at what those who don't make it onto the front bench must be like No, no, only joking. They're brilliant people there just to make life a little easier for all of us. And Kerry must get full marks for her honesty, not just for taking full credit for the Her Most Gracious Majesty's banking con mission she was so dragged, screaming and yelling to that she's still covered in bandages and bruises and cuts, but for declaring on the establishment of the con mission the government record speaks for itself. Absolutely true, it does. And full marks for honesty, Kelly. And she continued her burst of honesty, declaring we could not have a morality tax so banks and other rip-off merchants were excluded from the oh-so-critical tax cuts for the filthy rich. I mean, let's get a little bit real here, she exuded wisdom. Two points arising, of course, proving Kelly's point. There is absolutely no relationship between corporate taxes and morality. Well, corporate non-taxes. And if rip-off merchants were excluded from a corporate filthy rich tax cut, none of them would get one. Well, three things, really, for the a little bit real bit was also spot on. So, well done, Kelly. Down at the commission, or up at, I think, uh, AMP on the customers, executives admitted this week people could be hurt by revelations of ripping off big time. Uh, The customers you pee on, we assume. Don't be silly. Us. We are deeply concerned. They certainly looked deeply concerned. Shareholders are threatening to deny us millions of dollars in bonuses. It's daylight robbery. Not sure whether daylight robbery meant denying the millions or them getting the millions, but this bloke who owns a mob called Dover Financial, Terry McMaster, just before he collapsed and was carted away, showing the unnecessary stress all this is putting these poor, well, not-so-poor people through, it's so unfair, just before admitted its client protection policy protected Dover Financial and not the client. An Orwellian document, counsel assisting put. I agree with that, Terry said. But of course, this has been changed. Uh, Yes, when did you change it? We thrust a mic at poor Terry being carried away on the stretcher. Uh, Yesterday, of course. And saw this worse packed banker telling us how true blue Aussies love to help each other. None more so than the worst packed bank itself. Uh, So you love helping. Certainly. Love, love, love. We love helping ourselves to your money. Ripping off. You can bank on it. And the Troublewazzy Business Profits Council Supremo Jennifer Westercutt Wages was bitterly upset at the leak of a secret tax document quote showing the big corporates watered down the document designed to show the big corporate sincerity in using tax cuts for the filthy rich to make life that little bit better for all of us by actually offering to pay tax. That last bit was the bit they had trouble with. And Jennifer's distress that they wouldn't commit to paying tax? No, no. There's now a witch hunt to find out how the bloody thing was leaked. 
And on the great corporates, headline in yesterday's Troubler Aussie Capitalist Review reminded me former New South Wales big supremo Christ in her Keneally had been bumped into the Senate. Keneally leads Labor assault on business. It informed us, and I'm sure your thoughts are the same as mine, listener. Won't that have business shaking in its boots? On which, good news, real good news. A study by the House of Commons Library in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country calculates that by 2030, the 1% of super, super filthy rich in the world will own 64% of the world's wealth, which is real good news. If we happen to be one of the 1%. Not quite so good if we're one of the 99%. Still, we wish them well, because they must have earned every cent of it. And a week, of course, when we celebrated jingoism. Best we forget trained killer day, when those who love this country and know our true blue Aussie values were forged on the anvil of Gallipoli. That magnificent military disaster. Thousands slaughtered thanks to Winston Churchill as they invaded the wrong beach to prevent Turkey taking over true blue Aussie. Those who love were aghast at the iconoclastic assertion by social commentator Catherine Devenny that trained killer best we forget day is a Trojan horse quote for racism, sexism, toxic masculinity, violence, homophobia and discrimination. Slur, Lord Rupert of Wapping's True Blue Aussie Trailian with the big red True Blue Aussie up the top headlined. And Lord Rupert's usual suspect Wapping sin columnist was borderline heart attack as he bemoaned anyone denigrating our invasions and slaughters. And I probably also have to disagree with Catherine. Not sure about toxic masculinity. Although when we think about it, yeah, yeah, that's okay. Okay. But on racism, top marks for the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin for its ongoing campaign against racism. After a 20-year-old young bloke of North African origin, North Africa, we've invaded there too, that's worth celebrating. A 20-year-old young bloke of North African origin was given a non-custodial sentence. The judge declaring, there is no indication at all he has any connection to Apex a favourite in Lord Rupert's anti-racist campaign. So, what does the Lord Rupert headline say? Apex Link Gem Raider avoids jail. Accompanied by not just one, but two pictures of him, just to prove he's black and therefore different to we law-abiding whites. And describing him as a brute, despite her honour describing the case as exceptional, and he was no danger to the community. But hell... Why let a judge who wouldn't have a clue get between Lord Rupert and a little bit of anti-racism, particularly after Lord Rupert was forced to attack the entire bench across our sundry Victorian criminal courts for rejecting Lord Rupert's wonderful idea that the community should be involved in sentencing, a campaign denouncing lenient sentences and goody-goody judges and crime-run riot, to which, thankfully, the pejorative Dan capitulated. But then the bloody judges and magistrates refused to play ball, forcing Lord Rupert to attack them and the pejorative Dan, presumably for not reminding their honours about the separation of powers, for Lord Rupert and his editorial lackeys know that judges must be separated from this power, which they so abuse. 
laughed out of court. The oh-so-clever P1 screaming get the pejorative Dan headline. And if only community sentencing were in, that black apex brute would be doing about 25 with a 22 non-parole period, after which he'd be deported back to from where he fled. Serves him right. Lord Rupert continued his crusade against racism on the Wapping Sins World News page Tuesday. House of Horror splashed across the top. Four die in waffle restaurant shooting. Yet another US of guns don't kill event. With the names and ages of the victims. Then, single column down the bottom of the page, Afghanistan. Bomber kills at least 57. No names, no ages, just anonymous Afghans. Wonder how many would have to be slaughtered in the mopping up operation of our invasion to rate above four Americans. As Troubler was, he continues its obsequious bootlicking acolyte relationship with the U.S. of the great ba- the great value the U.S. of places on our special relationship was franked this week when, after leaving its Troubler was the ambassador post vacant for years and then appointing a trained killer who believes we should all trained kill China and North Korea and other evil governments which fail to see their coastlines as U.S. of territory and then decide he's now required in South Korea because there's this danger that talks between good, good, liberty, freedom and democracy love in South Korea and evil, evil North Korea might threaten the war by reaching some sort of peace. This would be bad for our merchants of death, bad for the USR, bad, bad. They might buy less train killer stuff they need to keep the war peace. Oh yes, they obviously value our special relationship, as this week Donald had a special relationship with French big supremo Mac Wrong. And I thought the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin missed a big opportunity after Donald wiped a bit of dandruff, or he claimed it was, and Donald always tells the truth, wiped. As surely with Dan Druff, Lord Rupert could have turned it into an attack on the pejorative Dan, blaming him for a surreptitious attack on the French big supremo's head. Big oversight, big oversight. And there's a bit of a blue developing over plans to change the name of the federal seat of Macmillan to Monash. It's about Monash Council saying people would get confused because the seat has nothing to do with the city. With the whopping sin saying Macmillan is tainted by association with alleged indigenous killings. Uh, which bit of thousands of blacks slaughtered is alleged? Ditto Finally, plans for a new youth prison, something we desperately need, have been delayed by the discovery of a bloody hole ecology threatened flora and fauna on the site in the fast-diminishing western grasslands. The government saying it will spend millions to offset, offset the loss of native habitat. Now, can someone explain to me how you offset the destruction of an environment? Although at the end of uh, Best We Forget Week, the media this week will upset May Day by hoping we forget. Good morning. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene.
You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Humphrey, you're on the line. Humphrey McQueen. I am indeed, and a busy week it's been too. Yes. And a busy week ahead. <laughs> yes, well, Marx's uh, 200th birthday could on only be. On the 5th it is indeed, and I'm going to be in Melbourne talking at Nibs at the bookshop on the Tuesday after at 7 o'clock. That yes. marked and the robots. <laughs> That's right. I warned people about this, that they could go to Everbright and get a ticket and go, yeah. or just turn up and just listen to up. you. I don't know. It'd be marvellous. And today we're going to talk about um, the manifesto. Yep, go ahead. In 1848. Um, and uh, actually, if you can manage to download it, there's a movie that's not inappropriate for these times. It was came out in 1968, 50 years ago, in the shadow of well, the build-up to the uh, revolts in Europe called Marx and Pass the Ammunition. So if you can track that down, marks and pass the ammunition, um, you'll have a lot of fun with that. Um, it stars it's a, John Thor. It does indeed, out of the Sweeney, for those of us who can remember all that way back. Or, or um, Morse. <laughs> yeah, well, more indeed. Um, yeah, and um, anyway, so that's just a little thought as to how you might want to celebrate Marx's birthday on the 5th. Um, and to think about that. Now, the manifesto was written in the heat of a revolutionary upsurge, of course. The charters had been added all through the 1840s in the United Kingdom, and then the years 1848 to 1851, the uprisings all the way across Europe, um, from Ireland to Poland. Engels is on the battlefront in southwest Germany, charging round in the cavalry. Um, Richard Wagner's heaving a piano onto a barricade in the city of Dresden. Hard to um, imagine. No, no, no. He was a revolutionary. You've got to remember. That's why he was banned. He couldn't go back to Germany. Mm. Um, yeah, I know. People forget about this. They, you know, you get one half of the story. You don't get the other half. Anyway, meanwhile, Marx, of course, is already in political exile because of what he's been uh, writing and publishing. So, but during 1847... He and others have organised the Communist League, which commissions the Communist Manifesto. And it's published in the beginning of 1848. Now, if you think about it, as many people have, quite rightly, parts one and two are a prose poem. And people have suggested it's the world's first example of a prose poem. And the mm. energy of the style... Yeah, captures the power of the subject matter. Now, when I was preparing these notes, I thought I'd better go back and reread the manifesto. So I did. I found myself, I'd only get a paragraph, and I started to read it aloud to myself because it really does lend itself to declamation. Um, indeed, Brecht and shaped the manifesto into a cantata with music by his fellow communist Hans Eisler. And uh, you can download that as well. Uh, the opening pages, of course, are not just this prose poem. They're a paean of praise to capitalism. <laughs> that could be called the cap, as many people have gained, have said, it really, those opening pages are really a capitalist manifesto. I just read you a bit to remind us of that. The bourgeoisie, historically, has played a most revolutionary part. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionising the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relations of society. Oh, it's such so, an incredibly important statement, that. Yeah, and of course this is the dialectical approach because it reveals 
that capitalism makes possible its opposite in socialism and in communism. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, it just is wonderful writing. Um, and it, I mean, it's interesting, it's done in German, and it translates as well when, when, uh, when, when I've just given it to you in an English translation. But anyway, however, the danger of being swept up, as I was in reading it again, is that that we get swept past so much of the detail of the complexity of what Marx really and Engels, because he's there too, want us to understand. So we have to apply the brakes. And what I'm going to do to do this, we'll just take the first paragraph for a while this morning and we'll go through it sentence by sentence. And the opening one, I suppose everybody on 3CR will know off by heart. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Stirring words, but wrong. Forty years later, Engels has to add a footnote. He says, not all history is class struggle, only all written history. And he points out that we'd been remaking ourselves for tens of thousands of years before classes had, had turned up. For instance, there wasn't any class struggle in on the Australian continent before the late 18th century. So there was history before there were class struggles, before there were classes. In a way, I think Engels' correction, while it's absolutely right, doesn't go far enough. He refers to um, only all of the history that can be written down or that, or that had been written down. Um, but, of course, the mere fact of being able to write comes after the emergence of a class system. If you go back thousands of years, they probably grow together, but it's equally, I think, almost certain that there were classes and divisions and exploitation before there was a system of being able to make a written record of it. So anyway, they're just little things. Archaeology provides us with that in terms of objects, but not in terms of what those objects people thought they were for or how they or how they thought they were making them or or all those elements of what it is to talk about a period of written history. So now to continue with the examination, Marx goes on, Marx and Engels go on to say Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another. Okay, what divides them? The pairings that, that we've just read all sound like economic categories, and that's kind of what we might expect. But Marx and Engels then sum them up in terms of the relations of different kinds of oppression. They say oppressor and oppressed. Uh, so that indicates a broader set of power relationships and purely economic ones, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. So that although they don't actually say the word, we can sense the long arm of the state as mm. the means to enforce those oppressive economic social relationships. Now, later on, they do get to the state, of course, but I think we should read the state into that as uh, something. Yeah, and, and then it normalises it, makes people think it's the air they breathe. Yeah, well, indeed, and as Rosa Luxemburg said, the state raises class violence to the level of a, a, a system of, of, of legal enforcement that appears to be external That's to right. the interests of any particular class. Yeah. So, anyway, 
Now they that, that's, the, been, that's the magic uh, trick. That is indeed the magic trick. They describe the conflict as going on all the time. These are constant, they say. Now, that means they go on all the time. But then they introduce, I think, is a vital qualifications to this. The struggle might be relentless, but it's always going to take different forms. And they say that these struggles are, and I quote, carried on in an uninterrupted, but now hidden, now open fight. So sometimes it's hidden and sometimes it's concealed. Now, I reckon that the crux of being a historical materialist, which is what Marx and Engels gave us, and we talked about this a couple of months ago, and we're talking about the German ideology, mm. is to reject any explanation that wants to impose what they call external, natural, and universal explanations on any bit of human activity. The task of a historical materialist to answer the question, how exactly does something happen in each time and in every place? There's no formula that you can slap down and think, oh, well, that's the class struggle, that explains everything. We don't need to do any more investigation or any hard thinking. So I think there's one more point to take from uninterrupted, now hidden, and now open. Yeah. That is that the class struggle, not a pantomime dragon. It doesn't stir up for the final act, but slap through the rest of the drama. Too often, I think, people, both for and against, think that Marx is saying that the class struggle only appears, say, in 1848 or in 1917 or might break out again in 1968. Yeah, that's a a piece. That's such false history, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And those revolutionary upsurges certainly are expressions of the class struggle. You know, there's certainly that. But, you know, Humphrey, that's interesting because it uh, it explains why, say, the whole business about uh, women's work and stuff like that being the things that happen in domestic situations uh, were undervalued as well because that's also a uh, a, uh, battlefield. Yeah, well, indeed. But there you've got to tie it into the ways in which, and that changes over time, and capitalism changes it. Marx is very clear about that. It's not just the same system. Angles with the development of the family and, um, and, and class struggle in the state explains how those changes come in. There's not just one way in which those domestic situations operate either. And that under capitalism, as you're saying, the struggle goes on every second of every day. And it goes on, as I think we've said more than once on, on our discussions, it goes on through the night as well. <laughs> because working longer, working harder, working broken shifts... Being out of work, yep. they're all taking an impact on the quality of our sleep and on the quality of our dreams. So there's, the class struggle is all around. It's not just, as we said before, not just the pantomime drag that pops up every now and again to entertain us. It's far, far more than that. Okay, we're getting towards the end of the first paragraph and Marx have, has, has, has another couple of shocks in store for us. We expect to hear, of course, from Marx and Engels that the class struggle is a fight which each time ends either in the revolutionary reconstruction of society at large. That's what we socialists look forward to. That's the outcome to which Marx and Engels indeed devoted all their lives. But what happens if we don't have a revolutionary reconstruction? Now, the manifesto answer is pretty grim. It says we suffer the common ruin of the contending classes. 
So they're not necessarily optimists. Well, they're optimists, but they don't think progress is inevitable. Mm. That's the big thing. I mean, this notion called the Whig interpretation of history, um, in which everything is going to get better and better, you know, more or less, sooner or later, you know, that kind of view of the world. They don't have that. They know perfectly well, and they know it from their deep knowledge of the ancient world, um, where whole societies and civilizations simply arise and then aren't there anymore. So the glorious socialist future is no sure bet. Like every other human advance, what they're arguing all through their lives and what they demonstrate throughout their lives is that the likelihood of socialism depends on how effective each side is in waging the class struggle. So it's up to us. It's not just going to fall out of the sky on us. As we well know, as we too painfully know. The rules are broken. (laughs) Yeah, well, indeed, indeed, indeed. We've got our rally here on Tuesday, and I'm going to be in Melbourne for yours on Wednesday week. Mm. Uh, So that'll be great fun. Um, And now they go on, and I think this relates pretty much to um, to these campaigns that are being waged now. They then, this massive historical sweep that they provided us with, um, they suddenly stop and we get a 10-point program <laughs> as to what to do next. Uh, and that's an indication, I think, of, their, of how they see how the left and socialists, the Communist League, should organise the class struggle. That you can't just operate in the stratosphere. You have to come down to the, to the everyday realities and say, this is how we are going to connect them. And they come up with 10 current demands, which they say, and this I think is also very important, will be different in different countries. Once more, there's no eternal, natural and universal. We've always got to work out the time and the place and say, how do they apply here and in the now? So it's a bit of a surprise to discover that out of the 10, four actually relate to agriculture. Um, very important part of their understanding of what the industrial system was, of how industry applied to agriculture and farming as much as to anything else. So that's one thing that's, uh, that certainly runs the way uh, all through there. But I think it's point 10 that probably takes most people on the left totally by surprise. Now, we won't be surprised to hear that it begins by saying abolition of children's factory labour in its present form. In its present form, they want children's factory labour to continue. They go on indeed and say the combination of education with industrial production. Now, I mean, this sounds a bit like the Business Council saying they want to, you know, they want kids to leave school job ready or something like that. Well, that's not what they're saying, of course. I reckon that the demand in the manifesto is yet one more expression of historical materialism. Remember, as I said before, a couple of months ago, we talked about what they were arguing in the German ideology and in, in, in also in the theses on Feuerbach. And the famous one that most people can quote, you know, interpreting the world or changing it. 
Now, what we argued a couple of months ago was that that's not a choice. Marx never saw interpretation and change as, oh, we can do one or the other. Marx and Engels are now applying the need to bring interpretation and change to one process to formal education. We learn by what we do is a fundamental rule of historical materialism. And that's what all the best teaching is about. Not kids sitting there with their arms folded watching things going on on the blackboard, but actually doing things, learning how to change the world to learn how the world changes itself. That's what they're talking about there. Um, And it's very important, I think, not just in formal education, but in but in political education, for people learned how to change the world by engaging in it. If we're going to change the rules, or you and I might say break the rules, we learn best how to do that when we're actually engaged in the process of it, not just sitting back and talking about how we might do it. So that's why we've got point 10 in the manifesto there. I'll just now, uh, remind people yep. that they're on Solidarity Breakfast. We've only got five minutes to go, Humphrey. So. Oh, okay. Well, then we better go at, at, a, at, a, at a bit of pace there. Because, look, let's just go on from there and say, what would those equivalent ideas, if we're trying to think of how, as Marx says, different in different countries, how we need to think of something today, what I'd propose is what I might call the seven pillars of socialism. The five main points of people's daily lives. What are they? Well, we know housing, transport, work, health and education. The left has to have detailed policies about each of those, which we work out by listening to people, what their needs are, how they want them expressed. The environment operates inside each of those five. It's not something down in the Tasmanian wilderness or up in the Great Barrier Reef. It's something part of... Like, like the class struggle, it's part of people's daily life, hour by hour. And the, and, the, and the seventh pillar is, of course, the capacity to break the rules. Because <laughs> if we don't have the right to protest, if we don't have the right to defend all the rights that our forebears have won by the class struggle, and that's how we have freedom of the press and freedom of speech and anything else. We, they weren't handed to us by the bourgeoisie. We had to take them from them. The seventh pillar is, is that. So we've got the five pillars of housing, transport, work, health, education, the environment woven into all of those, and the right, the power, the expression, putting change and breaking the rules into practice. They're the seven what I would call the seven pillars of socialism, which we can build out of what Marx is showing us in the Communist Manifesto. But it's a great read. I mean, I said to people, I said at the beginning, look, go slowly. Read it sentence by sentence. Perhaps even read it phrase by phrase in places to absorb it all. I mean, all all of this we've been saying today will go up on the website. But so enjoy it. Read it through at full belt because it really is terribly exciting and thrilling to do it. But to get the richness of it, we have to go slowly and to absorb every part of all of those insights that come to us from now 170 years ago, I think, if I can still count. <laughs> Thanks for talking to us today, Humphrey. Oh, my pleasure. I hope looking forward to seeing you in Melbourne on the streets, breaking yes. the rules. Okay. All right. Till then, bye-bye. 
for the November 2018 state elections. Victorian socialists and left-wingers are coming together to get a socialist elected to the upper house for the northern metropolitan region. Leading the ticket is long-time Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, followed by Moreland councillor Sue Bolden from the Socialist Alliance and Colleen Bolger from the Socialist Attorney. Victorian socialists will officially be launching our campaign on Saturday the 12th of May from 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Come along to find out more about our campaign and how you can get involved. It will be an opportunity to hear from the candidates and local community residents on the importance of getting a socialist into Parliament and presenting a political alternative from the major capitalist parties. A 3CR supporter. And uh, we've come to the end of the program. Of course, May Day is on Tuesday, the important day. Uh, uh, but... Uh, Victoria Trade Hall is having its uh, family day and celebrations on Sunday the 6th of May. That's uh, on... And there's going to be a um, uh, family day, as I said, uh, assembly, assembly at 1pm, Victoria Trade Hall. Uh, the, there's going to be uh, music and uh, other things uh on that day, but uh, there's going to be some events on the actual day, Tuesday, the first uh, of May. Three uh, uh, CR is going to have some special programming in the morning. Uh, there's going to be a an event, uh, champagne for the unemployed, and it's to celebrate uh, Chummy uh, Fleming, the uh, Melbourne anarchist whose name is synonymous with May Day in Melbourne, handing out champagne from his boot shop in Ligon Street. Bit of great history there. Carlton in 1892, the champagne was donated to Chummy by Lord Hopeton, Governor of Victoria and Australia's first Governor-General when Chummy intercepted the coach of the Governor to bring the plight of the Australian unemployed during the 1890s Depression to his attention. So Chummy's place, Carlton, is named after Chummy Fleming, the father of Melbourne's May Day March. So in honour of that, there's going to be assembly at 11am at Chummy Place Carlton. Uh, it's um, in on in the Melways. 11.30am, eight-hour monument at the corner of Russell Street and Victoria Street. 12pm, Her Majesty's Theatre, uh, 219 Exhibition Street, Melbourne. 12.30pm, May Day Lunch. Paramount Food Hall, Little Burke Street, bring your own food and drink and join us to celebrate an important day in the radical calendar, 132nd anniversary of the Australian Anarchist Movement. That's one of the events. At uh, 5pm at State Library, there's going to be a gathering uh, that's uh, auspiced by the Australian Workers' Link. And uh, as I said, uh, March uh, uh, on um, May Day, Sunday the 6th of May, defend workers' rights, demand the rights to strike, Assembly 1pm, Victorian Trades Hall, corner of Victoria and Russell Street. Today on Solidarity Breakfast, we had... uh, Uh, We went back to robots and uh, how to organise in the uh, tech world that we live in now, workers organising. We we went on to uh, the idea of uh, change the rules for uh, refugees and how that might relate to uh, unions. Uh, We went on to what's going on in Centrelink, the rapid privatisation of our culture and our social a security system to uh, companies like Serco, who run private prisons, draw uh, <laughs> join the dots, 
And uh, we went on to he- uh, Kevin with This Is The Week That Was and then went on to uh, uh, Humphrey McQueen and his illuminating discussion about uh, the Communist Manifesto. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Uh, there's going to be a, a uh, there's a tour going on at the moment with Archie Roach and Titus as Support Act. It's coming to Melbourne in May. You can look it up. Uh, so I thought I might go out with a Titus number in some, inside my kitchen. Uh, we will. You will hear from me next week, as I said, Asia Pacific Currents. Located in the heart of Thornbury, the Islamic Museum of Australia showcases the cultural and artistic heritage of Australian Muslims. Don't miss our latest youth-based exhibition, Ways to be Muslim, and immerse yourself in a series of photographic portraits and unique personal narratives. This exhibition is hosted in partnership with Muslim Collective and the Victorian State Government and is showing until July 8th. Visit the museum website for more information. Islamic Museum of Australia is a 3CR supporter. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia-Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.